Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kathleen McLean, a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. I'd like to welcome you here, acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that's been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. I also recognize the enduring presence of Indigenous peoples on this land. Tonight's talk by Georgiana Olyaric is held in conjunction with the exhibition Florian Stettheimer Painting Poetry, which is organized by the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Jewish Museum in New York. We'd like to thank the lead supporter, Terra Foundation for American Art, and generous support of Cyril, Dorothy Joel, and Jill Reitman Family Foundation, and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation. First, I want to do a quick poll. How many people have seen the exhibition? Okay, that's almost all of you. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's up right now on the Art Gallery of Ontario's second floor in the Sydney Eaton galleries, and it's incredible. And then this is a question for Florine Stettheimer, completists who might be in the house. How many of you have seen the exhibition when it was at the Jewish Museum in New York earlier this year? Whoa, okay, so bonus points for you folks. That's great to see. Um, it's really the first opportunity for well, me and a lot of Canadians to see this kind of um, critical mass of Stettheimer in one place, so we're super excited that it's here. Tonight's talk is the first of several programs inspired by the exhibition. If you happen to be in the gallery tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, um, we're going to have a pile of Ryerson students who are taking a seminar course based on Florine Stettheimer and Salon culture, present a Florine Stettheimer-inspired salon that is included with general admission. Um, on Friday, December 8th, we're going to have writers Natalie Atkinson and Derek McCormick inside the exhibition, uh, responding to the work and riffing on Stettheimer fashion design, costume shopping, and more. On January 12th, we'll have another salon inside the show featuring um, a program curated by Just John from the Blank Canvas Gallery. So imagine a contemporary response to the exhibition. All of those things will be great. Um, and Georgiana's talk will too. For those of you who don't know, Georgiana Olyarik is curator of Canadian art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, some of her past curated exhibitions here which I think of as her greatest and most recent hits include um, Florine Stettheimer, Painting Poetry, of which she is the co-curator, uh, the Georgia O'Keeffe exhibition of 2017, picturing the Americas landscape painting from the Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic, introducing Susie Lake, and lots more. Originally from Romania, um, Georgiana lives in Toronto with her twin sons. So please join me in welcoming Georgiana Olyarek. Thank you. Good evening. This is my first talk. Glasses. I'm middle-aged now. That's what it means. Okay. I have so many items. Thank you for coming, and uh, thank you to the Romanians in the crowd. Buna seara, bine ați venit. Shulmona, mod special pentru roche. I want to also thank you so much for your interest in Stedheimer. Clearly, you've come and seen the show. Um, this is one of the best parts about being a curator, uh, that once you open the show, you get to spend time in it and listen and overhear what visitors are saying uh, and sometimes even interact with them. Because for me, it really does open up new ways of seeing and thinking about the material that I think I've thought through. Um, and uh, the. The best and worst part is when people come up to me and ask me questions I don't have answers to. So clearly, uh, there's so much uh, to discover once the exhibition is up. I've done many, many shows, but I would say that Stedheimer is particularly fascinating to me um, for a number of reasons, and this is what I'd like to explore. I have a very broad question about her art, and I don't really have any satisfying answers, but I'm grateful to all of you that you will allow me to perform today some ways in which I would like to approach it, um, and hopefully it will provoke something for all of you and all of us to talk about, uh, but also talk amongst each other. Uh, Stedheimer, when the exhibition opened at the Jewish Museum this May, Art News uh, declared that Stedheimer may be the most important modernist painter you've never heard of. 
And uh, I think like all artists, uh, she really is prey to this kind of sensational declaration. And this never heard of, whether true or not, is actually not all that bad. In fact, I think it can be a very useful thing because I have found, for example, in comparison with Georgia O'Keeffe, uh, who maybe suffers from too much having heard of, um, we no longer are able to really see her paintings, where with Stedheimer, not knowing all that much or knowing even just very little, really gives us a chance uh, to see the show with open eyes. It's, I think, conducive to a more open mind. It makes our preconceptions and assumptions that much more vulnerable. Um, and therefore, we can hope for some real and unencumbered looking to really have a direct experience with the work without any expectations of what we're supposed to think or take away. Um, and so I really do think that this kind of not knowing or believing we don't know makes, up, um, makes us a, a, a more open, and this is truly my hope. And it's interesting, the response I've gotten in comparison to O'Keeffe, because I can't quite not compare them. They were very good friends, as you'll see. And these two exhibitions happened for me in the same year with Rita Latendra in the middle. So it's been quite the powerhouse of women painters of the 20th century. Um, so what I found is that people come to me and they say, I may not be a big fan of the paintings, but I really find this uh, getting to know them very satisfying and very fascinating. So I think that means that you can still kind of not feel that, uh, pretend that you have to be in the know and say that you like Stedheimer, so you can be very honest about that and you still continue to be very open to it. You know, the other part of the quotation was maybe the most important modernist painter, and I am grateful for it not saying the most important female modernist painter, which often happens, that's a slight thing. Um, so you're back to that kind of guilt and expectation, but I think also it speaks to sort of this insatiable desire that we have to order and categorize, to neatly arrange art and artists according to uh, whatever kind of movement, to evaluate them, to rank them, who's a genius, who's not, who influenced who, this kind of who begat who. Um, and of course, that sort of that, that um, label modernist with a capital M, whatever that may mean, is it referring to a time period or a style or an attitude or all these things. Like I said, I think this kind of frame uh, can be helpful because I think it is a symptom to what I think is sort of my central question about Stedheimer, and that is how are we supposed to make sense of what we're looking at? What are we to make of the kind of work that Stedheimer make, made? Um, and I think that while that may be true of many exhibitions and many artists, I think Stedheimer is like uniquely positioned to lead to what I think is really this fundamental question. Um, there are two great uh, scholars in Toronto who work at Ryerson, uh, Professor Arvind Gemmel and Suzanne Salazzo, who in 2011, talking about Stedheimer and a great essay about cellophane, um, kind of pinpoint this when they say that Stedheimer defies any sense of stable identity. And so it really does beg the question of what how are we to, to make sense of this kind of work, this one in particular? Uh, it's not in the exhibition, but I think it's one that, you know, gives you Stedheimer full on, called Love Flight of a Pink Candy Heart from 1930. And what we're looking at is Stedheimer on the balcony. She's sort of looking down in this contemplative thing on the scene that is mostly made up by men. Some are naked, some are nakedly riding horses. So there's sort of a nice reversal of kind of like she's the observer. And this kind of uh, circular uh, spiral kind of composition with these trumpets appearing, the figures that do appear can be identified as um, American painters from that period. Um, our eye is always moving, always trying to make sense of you know, just what possibly could be going on in this picture. This is also her own design for her own frame. And Barbara Blomink, who is sort of the Stedheimer scholar, um, she speaks uh, of it as enigmatic, nostalgic, transient. And the, at the conference last week um, that uh, 
was mentioned, that Kathleen mentioned, uh, David Dornbaum talked about uh, Lacan and his notion of if you want to study something like a butterfly, once you pin it down, you've actually killed it and you can no longer understand anything about a butterfly. And I was thinking about this picture and how she's in it, but how perhaps this sort of yellow, acidic uh, landscape that she's in, this pink horizon, the way in which figures appear from every kind of perspective, that maybe this is what the world looked like if you were a butterfly or a dragonfly, which is what she identifies with, you know, this insect with 12,000 eyes, that um, you can see the world through these multiple perspectives that has no sense of time or place or space. Because if you're looking at this painting that she's making in 1930, just as a reminder, this is what American painting looked like in 1930. Um, this, uh, and it's interesting because Grant Wood himself was not necessarily thought of as someone at the center of American painting, you know, being from Iowa and Midwest. But what's interesting to think about, he makes this picture, it becomes very famous right away. It's bought by the Art Institute. He becomes famous, he wins a prize, and then it enters forever into the imagination. But Wood himself also has a very, per very personal references in this picture. Um, and also, incidentally, he uh, was also great at making his own frames. So this is the kind of work that people were used to think about or look at in the United States in 1931. And yet here is Setheimer again. Uh, this is her own version of America. She has a series of uh, four cathedrals, the Cathedral of Art, of Broadway, of, of Wall Street, and of Fifth Avenue. And these are massive pictures. Um, this was sort of her, her last painting series um, in which she also is trying to get at, you know, the great American painting, like O'Keeffe, like Wood, like everybody. And it's interesting, specifically about these works that are not in the exhibition, because they're very fragile, and it's very hard to get things out of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, that uh, in, uh, in the 1950s, uh, Henry Gelsoller, who was the first curator of contemporary art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, prized these paintings very highly. He included them in many, many exhibitions. Um, and this was really kind of against the current, if you imagine, you know, the 50s and 60s in New York at the time. And in particular, um, when Andy Warhol came to the museum, they looked at these paintings in particular. Andy Warhol thought of Stedheimer as uh, his favorite artist. I think that sort of, in Geldzahler talks about uh, Stedheimer kind of being a uh, prophetic about a concern and interest in Americana, which of course kind of lends itself to Warhol, but I think probably Warhol's uh, in that, in being enamored with Stedheimer for a number of other reasons as well. And, and um, Gildzahler also, in 1965, when he has a great big exhibition at the Metropolitan, uh, speaks of her work in the book as unclassifiable. But then, of course, he's practical, he's a curator, so he has to put her somewhere. So he includes her in the primitives and naives section. And I think uh, that, again, it speaks to this, this uh, kind of problem that Stedheimer offers us, that we really have to figure out all over again what it is that we are, make, we are to make of this work. And to me, this becomes a kind of um, a rich and, and very open question. Um, just to start a little bit earlier on, um, I think, like I said, Stedheimer, more than any artist, defies with creativity and intelligence and confidence, and most of all, I think, ease, any and all of our attempts to frame her. In this early self-portrait, um, Stedheimer uh, already uh, represents herself as an artist. She has all the attributes of an artist. And throughout her life, her own presentation, her own image really was of central concern. It really was about her own representation, and I'll talk a little bit about that, in variety of guises and extensions that really are all truly herself. So what I'm hoping for for this talk tonight is that it will be as much about her work uh, as it is about how Stedheimer, um, unlike many artists, I think, or more, more than any other artist, both allows and resists, let's call it interpretation. 
I think that it is this, this specific kind of um, invitation, but also kind of keeping us at bay um, and not really making room for us as viewers as we walk uh, through the exhibition and look at the work that makes Stenheimer always contemporary um, and always very compelling. To think about what do we make of this kind of work is to also address another very fundamental primary question, which is what do artists do? No one asks them to do it. In fact, they're highly discouraged from being artists very often from when they're very young. Um, and yet, uh, they exist, obviously. Um, so this question of what is it that artists do and why they do it, a question, I think, without any answer, at least from me, um, because I think really what is at the center is always artists. It's not art at the center, but rather artists. It really is through the, their doing what they do, whether it is a song or a poem or a painting, that we are able to encounter one another, to be in the presence of another's consciousness. A kind of encounter that defies time and place and space and logic, and it is perhaps our this desire to connect that might be the beginning of an answer to the unanswerable why of artists. It's an interesting moment to have Stedheimer on at the AGO right now because you have Guillermo del Toro at home with monsters, and then you have Florine Stedheimer at home with fairies, I like to think. Um, and uh, when Guillermo del Toro came to speak about uh, what is it that artists do, he spoke about um, the essence of the artist being to create a world that does not exist. And I think that Stedheimer is this kind of artist. And I don't think we're meant to understand that this world that doesn't exist is unrelated or separate from what we call real, the one that exists. I think on the contrary, this world that does not exist is one very much connected to the one we inhabit because the most profound thing that it does is reveals um, the, um, the invention of what we call reality. It reveals also the centrality of these stories, for lack of a better world, in our lives, stories painted, written, sung, told, performed, expressed. This kind of meaning making, this is what artists do. And to create a world that does not exist is to conjure up a realm imbued with meaning that reveals its mysteries, its contradictions, only in part and over time through signs and patterns and encounters with creatures and apparitions that seem to follow conventions and movements and ideas all of their own making. Through these manifestations that we call art, um, it is our invitation to enter, to participate, our invitation above all, I believe, to believe even though we can never fully know or even comprehend all that is going on, we are invited to believe. Florine Stedheimer conjures up a world that does not exist and is as much as all artists do this. I think Stedheimer's world is so profoundly of her own making. It is so undeniably unlike any other, yet referencing ours, that it can be baffling to know what to do with it. Stedheimer made art for herself. She is the creator, she is the object, she is the subject, she is the context within which she paints it, and she is its primary audience. There's a kind of complete cosmos that she kind of wraps up in cellophane and lives in it. And if you, walking through the exhibition, you will see that many of the walls, uh, the, the returns of the walls, are actually mirrors. And to me, this was a cue that I took from her own apartment. There are many, many mirrors everywhere. But also to kind of reinforce this kind of closed circuit, this kind of echo, uh, in her case, echo of domesticity, where she really is all these things all at once, including the audience. So to imagine the modern moment in the United States in the early 1900s is to understand that Stedheimer could not possibly have had a place in it, and thus she needed to construct it in order for her to exist. And that by conjuring up this world, she was indeed radical, daring, and imaginative. 
So it's no surprise that her paintings and her sets and costumes design, what we're looking at, challenged New York's artistic elite in the 20s and 30s and fueled the vanguard of her time, primarily, and we'll talk a little bit later, Marcel Duchamp. It is just us that we're still trying to figure out how it is that we can deal with this work. Stedheimer's world beguiles us. For this, her art has been both dismissed and venerated, ignored and cyclically rediscovered. We always seem to be at the very beginning of getting to know Stedheimer. So for example, Paul Rosenfeld in 1945, when he was talking about this work, Family Portrait Two, um, describes it as a boudoir, frail, delicate, ornate, noting Stedheimer's gift for daintiness of workmanship and fantasy. And Linda Nochlin, the famous art historian who recently passed away, in her uh, famous essay, uh, Rococo Subversive, locates this painting and Stedheimer herself in her preferred setting, um, New York, West Side, feminine, floral, familial. She's not being condescending in listing these attributes. I think paradoxically they were, for Stedheimer, a very active site of an informed and very forceful rejection of tradition. But I would suggest that in these two views of this one painting, that in neither case is really Stedheimer considered sort of on her own terms, and thus forever responses remain a kind of reading through the lens of the author. It is whatever Rosenfeld needed Stedheimer to be, whatever Nochlin needed Stedheimer to be, and they're not inaccurate or uninteresting, but they're simply incomplete. And I think about Stedheimer is that we have to absolutely accept that it will always be incomplete. At least this argument I'm making. So we'll see how it goes. Um, this, uh, this incompleteness um, is to some extent uh, something of Stedheimer's own making. And I would argue that she does this consciously and deliberately so. There's a way in which she subverts categorization, which is not to say that she is without a range of precursors or precedents. Um, she is all the while referencing and quoting and taking things from the world that are relevant to her, and in particular other paintings and draws on classical mythology as we saw. But there's a, a way in which she, uh, so she coyly alludes to other artists and subject matter, the kind of art that makes art with a capital A, like in her poem, art is spelled with a capital A and capital also backs it. Ignorance also makes it sway. The chief thing is to make it pay in a quite dizzy way. Hurrah, hurrah. Because in the end, what does this kind of decoding of influences really offer? That here there's a bit of Matisse and a bit of Gauguin and a bit of Titian and Manet and you take your pick, it's all in there. Um, if not to simply state the obvious, in fact, what it is that she says, to make it pay. And just today there was a journalist who hopefully will write a review of the exhibition. Um, and sort of as soon as he entered, he started to try to name things surrealism, symbolism, everything. He just was trying so hard. Um, and you know, by the end of it, I think that it is so important to remember this business about the butterfly or the dragonflies, that there is, it's, it, it will lead you to a certain thing if you pin her down this way, but I don't think she was so much interested in that, so why should we? Nothing can prepare us for the world that does not exist that Stedheimer conjures up. And hardly any, even those very close to her, were privy to the fullness of it. So for example, Carl von Wechten, who was a very close friend, he was a poet and a, a writer and a uh, bon vivant, let's say, um, and a photographer, in the introduction to Stedheimer's biography, talks about this business that even though you felt very invited and you always felt very welcome and you always had a fantastic time at the Stedheimer home, you understood once you left that you actually got to know them very little. So again, this was business of being really invited but also kind of uh, resisting really getting into uh, what it's all about. Um, and in this picture, I think that you can begin to see this. Um, what we're looking at is a portrait of the family. Uh, you have Stedheimer and Eddie and the mother and Carrie, and clearly you are in New York. You see all of the symbols of New York. Um, and in this beautiful sort of proscenic kind of presentation, there's a performance going on, and clearly it's so lush and opulent and colorful. And what would stop you from 
entering, but these gigantic flowers that seem to float in the middle of the picture. And as inviting as they are, they are also a way to uh, keep us away. So even though we are unprepared, because nothing can prepare us to be in the world that uh, Stedheimer conjures up, we must trust that we, if we do enter, it will be indeed uh, very satisfying and rewarding. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Usually I don't do this with women artists, but um, I think it's necessary because Stedheimer herself puts a lot of biography in her work. As I said before, she was her central concern. She was a subject matter. But uh, beyond that, her primary inspiration was the private, intimate sphere of her family. She painted her sisters, her mother, herself very often. And through these cumulative and many family portraits, I believe that Stedheimer implicates herself and her family as participants in history. That what she's doing is she's painting herself into an art history of her own making. She's informed by a long classical tradition of genre and history painting and every other kind that's activated by a vanguard attitude. She takes all those things that artists do that are really relevant to them and them alone with ju without justification and she kind of just whips it up in the most beautiful um, thing to behold. Stedheimer was born to a very affluent family in uh, 1871 in Rochester, New York. And here's a bit of her family. It's uh, not in the exhibition. Again, it's very fragile and cannot travel. Um, she was the youngest of five siblings. Uh, there were four daughters and one boy. And uh, this screen is actually an instance where Walter appears. He hardly ever appears. Uh, and sometimes the sister Stella also appears. But it really is er um, Eddie and uh, Florine and Carrie and the mother that kind of make up the family unit. Um, you can see already that each one of them um, has attributes associated with each of the siblings. She was always interested in the arts from the very beginning, from when she was a young child in theater and poetry, so she already appears with a palette and a brush. Eddie has the uh, pen and paper, she's the philosopher, she's the author. Carrie is the hostess, and Walter is playing with a dog. Um, that's what men do, just joking. <laughs> I was totally uncalled for and rude and interrupting. Okay, never mind. Um, but to get back to the screen, um, what you see is that there is this, this like mode of presentation that everything appears on a vase with flowers on this little kind of canapé of fabric, each with a, a baldachin or, or some kind of covering and uh, with some kind of reference to the natural world. So for her, it is in this case, both the dragonfly at the very top and the butterflies. Um, so Already these things are present uh, in the way in which she conjures up her family and wants to represent them, very much the way in which saints are eternally characterized by their attributes. And just like in sainthood, these attributes are permanent. A screen, and this screen in particular, like I said, it's not in the exhibition, but it was actually very inspirational to us in the design. If you see the show, there's sort of two kind of kiosks that take their cue from this um, from this shape. A screen designates a threshold, the barrier between the public and the private, between the artifice of how each appears and the role each plays in society, and that which is intimate, beyond reach, to, which there, to where there is no access, the private. And as much as Stedheimer appears to reveal about her siblings in these panels, it is also a way to keep us apart. And to sort of continue this reference to icons and saints, uh, we can think of these screens of very much the way in which the iconostasis uh, functions in primarily Greek Orthodox uh, churches. This real delineation between the, er the earthly realm where we can all stand and the heavenly, the holy altar, um, where only certain holy people are uh, allowed to enter. And then in, in sort of if we were to think of this uh, threshold between here and what we exist in the world that she conjures up, family portrait too also functions as this kind of screen. Belonging to a prosperous and well-connected Jewish family in New York, 
uh, and even though they were financially secure and never had to worry about these kinds of things, um, they lived in a deeply segregated society. Uh, because of their Jewish heritage, because they were Jews, of course, they, uh, they, it was very well understood what they were allowed to enter and what they were not allowed to enter. In addition to that, of course, they were women who did not have the right to vote in the United States of America until 1920. It is important to note that Stedheimer, actually her, her, her heritage um, is very matrilineal. Um, Rosetta Walter, who we see here, Mary Joseph Stedheimer, who contributed the name and then left the family never to be spoken of again after the last child was born. Um, Rosetta herself is descended from this line of Jewish families that settled and prospered in the United States beginning in the early 1800s. Rosetta herself came up from a very large family of nine girls and one boy. And this is her sister, Caroline Walter. Um, again, it's a, it's a posthumous portrait of Caroline, um, who was the aunt with whom they lived upon their return to New York. Uh, because this sister, uh, Caroline, uh, who her sister Carrie is named after, um, was one of the most influential personalities in the Stedheimer uh, development. She, she admired her greatly for elegance and independence and strong personality. So these women that come uh, from Stedheimer's family, they were all highly educated, highly traveled, very self determined, um, and this was really the model that was uh, always for Stedheimer. The portraits of women, it's interesting to note, um, are always either her relatives or people that are closely related to her childhood. I think almost all of them are women with the exception of one. Uh, it's kind of, and, and she does begin to paint them in the 20s, almost kind of a, res, a remembrance of things past, of people loved. On the other hand, uh, her numerous portraits of key figures in New York avant-garde, which she paints at the same time, are exclusively of men. And this is Henry McBride, um, who's a very close friend and critic, and who referred to these portraits of men as outside portraits. Again, a kind of revealing a kind of awareness that even though you were close to her and the artist, you always understood that you were an outsider. And interestingly, they really are all portraits of men. Here, McBrider, uh, McBrider, <laughs> McBride is an arbiter of taste. Um, he loved tennis. And what you see is a kind of evocation of American painters that he was um, championing at the time. No one ever knew that Stedheimer was going to paint your portrait. So you would kind of show up to a party, and there you were. Um, no one ever actually saw her make work, so it was always a kind of surprise. And it was a great surprise to Stieglitz when he showed up to the house um, and understood that Stedheimer had made this portrait of her. And it's interesting to think because Stedheimer was friends both with Stieglitz and O'Keefe, and yet she only paints Stieglitz, although O'Keefe does appear, if you look in, the, in reverse, right above his shoulder. Um, Again, I guess trying to kind of maintain this kind of outsider-insider. And so there was correspondence about this picture because O'Keefe hadn't seen it yet. And um, in response, Stedheimer writes to her and she says, I don't think I have painted your special Stieglitz. I imagine I tried to do his special Stieglitz, but probably only achieved my special Stieglitz. Um, again, you see in this kind of composition, this kind of spiral, the way it's like everything is sort of centered around his hand that's almost in the center. Everything sort of spirals in and out of this picture. Um, that this is the Stieglitz that actually could occupy Stedheimer's world that she conjured up, the one that doesn't exist. That is why it is her special Stieglitz. Duchamp, as I mentioned before, is the only exception. Uh, he gets painted often. And in terms of portraits, uh, there are two uh, portraits by Stedheimer of Duchamp. And um, in particular, the one with the frame, the frame alone is something to behold. Um, there are no other representations of Duchamp as both uh, Duchamp himself and Rosella V. Um, there's many things to say about this picture. There was up for auction yesterday, actually. Uh, that's a total aside. Maybe we can talk about it another time. Um, but um, these, um, this, this close relationship that she has with Duchamp 
I think, once again, defies this notion of influence and speaks much more about collaboration. And um, there, was, uh, there were many papers, actually, at the Ryerson Symposium that spoke about this uh, sort of collaboration, community collaboration, even though she's conjuring up um, her own work. The Stedheimers, um, they meet Duchamp in Paris because they spend the um, 1980s and 1990s up until 1914 in Europe. And this is really her training. She has formal training at the Art Students League, but also uh, they spend their time really in Europe until war breaks out. Um, this studying, visiting family, but also going to plays and operas and museums and visiting artist studios. These are incredibly cultured, refined, intelligent, well-traveled, well-learned, and well-trained people uh, who are really interested only in a certain kind of erudition. In the, 19, in the 1890s, uh, while in New York, she does join the Art Student League, which was a very uh, unique school that was uh, created for artists, by artists, artists taught other artists. Um, it was one of the first places where you, as a woman artist, could paint a female nude and also a male nude. Um, and it's at this time that she takes a studio at Bryant Park. I want to show you these very quickly because uh, they're not in the show. They were in New York. Uh, I think they just sort of make the point that she is highly trained, highly skilled. She can draw, you know, she chooses not to this way. Um, and in, perhaps more impressively in this uh, portrait that is in the exhibition, um, the, uh, this is from the moment that she was at the Art Students League where she was studying with the society painters. And I just had to show you this Whistler because it's so beautiful to look at. Um, and uh, I meant to look this up. Maybe somebody knows. Um, the Frick collection, when it opened, was, was it open to the public and everyone could go or was it very restricted? Because it would be interesting to know whether she would have had access to see uh, the Frick in its, in its fullness. Nonetheless, it's just to kind of anchor the work. Um, it shows there's this full-length portrait that she's ambitious um, and that uh, she's thinking about Europe and the US, although she has this great preference from Europe. And it is actually in Europe that something uh, fundamental happens to Stettheimer, and that is in 1912, in June, when she goes to see the Ballet Russe production of L'après-midi d'Enfant and sees uh, Nijinsky and understands that what Nijinsky has done for dance and movement, she needs to do in her own work. And soon after that, she paints this portrait that is really sort of a self-portrait with Nijinsky as a font, but you can also think of it as a kind of double portrait. Um, she here uh, really begins to articulate her own artistic vision with these uh, colors and this crazy kind of composition that really is a visual language that is all her own. The other really key thing that happens after she sees Nijinsky is this, and I'm so proud of this curved wall. I show it because I'm proud of it. Um, you don't know what it takes to have a curved wall at the EGO, just saying. Um, is because uh, in 1912, when she starts to think about how is it that she can push herself to really develop her own uh, way of working, she begins by making uh, sketches and um, maquettes for a ballet that she writes herself called The, uh, the Four Arts. And these are all in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art. And since I had the great privilege of seeing them just on the table, you could kind of flip through them. I wanted to create for all of us a real intimacy so that you really get to understand her process, that you really get to be really close to these works. Because very little is known about her process. No one, like I said, saw her making work. There's been no technical analysis. Hopefully this will start. Um, but I think that these works in particular give us insight in how she worked. Because she would start with a sketch and then she would make a watercolor. Already you can see the use of material. But then in these maquettes, you really see her creativity blossom. And you see um, her real attention to material and how much information she got 
from them, how she pushed them, how she used them, how she reimagined their purpose. Um, I think this is an area that really has not been uh, studied in terms of Stedheimer, is her relationship to materials. So uh, this was for me one of the sort of key um, influences in terms of how to exhibit her work, because there's nothing worse than having Stedheimer paintings on white walls with white light. So uh, I tried my best. Nonetheless, because uh, if you, I mean, just you, this is sort of close up, but again, I hope that you all get to really look very closely to understand um, how um, close she was to the material and how close, sort of, this is as close as we can get to her. Um, creative act. And what happens in this ballet uh, that she invented is you have Georgette, again, uh, maybe someone who stands in for us, who happens upon a bacchanal that's taking place down the Champs-Élysées. And through her and her transformation, because she follows Orpheus, because apparently we all have to follow Orpheus, um, she uh, uh, encounters the main ads. Uh, this, is, this would have been the first sketch, then it would have been worked up. And through this encounter, she turns into this Georgette in the middle of the ballet. Again, it's the same creature, but so transparent, where you have one piece of fabric that kind of creates the whole dress. And you can see how she would take, the, she would take that material apart and create the hair um, for Georgette. So all of a sudden, there's a kind of immense freedom in how this figure moves versus the other one. Um, but of course, it's 1912 and it's Paris, um, and uh, the whole bacchanal, the whole great fun is being destroyed by the appearance of Mars, the god of war, um, who basically takes everyone's fantasy away. Um, it was with the First World War in 1914 that the Stedheimers returned to New York. They never go back to Europe. They travel through the United States a little bit, and once they come to Canada in 1937. And by Canada, I really I mean Quebec. Um, and from then on, they really kind of establish uh, this salon um, that uh, their great courses in at, uh, at Ryerson. And this was an incredibly exclusive salon. It was run by Carrie and Eddie um, and their mother, the steadies as they became uh, to be known. They were very exclusive things that took place in their apartment in New York and also in their summer homes uh, during um, the summer uh, and vacation homes. And, and um, it's funny because these things, obviously, these parties were taking place during uh, Prohibition, and yet Carl Van Vechten talks about the fact that the only party that you could go to during this time and really still have a really great time without any alcohol was the Stedheimer Salon. So clearly there was something incredibly uh, vibrant and compelling that was going on in these salons that were frequented, like I said, by people and by invitation only. Um, many expats like Duchamp and Picabia, but also American artists, um, among dancers and musicians and writers and critics and gallerists. Um, and it was at these salons that sometimes uh, Stedheimer would debut one of her paintings, and sometimes she would paint the painting where she debuted her painting. Um, talk about this kind of way in which she kind of spins us around, uh, uh, sort of rotate the space within the painting itself, but also um, for us to, again, if you look at this picture, what you're looking at is um, a painting that nobody's looking at, except for one person on the side. Everyone else is looking at this thing that's on the easel, which we can presume that is the painting that we are looking at. And there is this table that appears to be inviting us, but actually there is no space, there is no room for us to enter this picture. And what you have at the very center of it um, is actually this painting um, that's uh, quite remarkable, uh, perhaps the most brazen picture that she ever painted. It's a full portrait of herself, naked. Um, one of the very earliest portraits of, sort of self-portraits of, by a female artist of herself naked. And um, I was thinking about this picture a lot because of course you can talk about like every nude painting that has ever been made, and of course they're all in it. Um, and of course she's referencing them, but I think that what really comes across in the way in which she is just staring straight at us and you can just see everything 
um, is that she herself, Stettheimer, is the subject of art. Like I said, she is the creator, she is the object, she is the subject, she is art in this way in which she creates a world that does not exist. Um, in 1916, it's the only time that she exhibited, she had a solo exhibition that she chose to exhibit. Um, she did not include uh, this painting um, in that exhibition, and many people speculate why it is that she only ever had um, this one show, and therefore sometimes imagine that uh, she was not interested in having that kind of exposure. She had no interest in selling her work, we'll see a little bit later on. Um, and there is some kind of reluctance uh, in her to uh, exhibit work. So what you have here, and I was looking for one more image that I simply cannot find. These are letters that she's writing in 37 to the curator at MoMA, uh, Goodyear, basically telling him that she is very sorry that she has no painting suitable at present for your museum walls. Um, but you see that she's making these drafts. These are in her archives at Yale. Um, and what I, the picture I can find is on the other side of the letter that says October 22. You can almost make it out October 17. That is the acceptance letter. So she says, yes, I will participate in your show on October 17. And then on October 22nd, she says, actually, no, I'm not going to. Um, so you know, what we make of that um, is, I think, that she was very particular about how and when and to who she was interested in exhibiting her work. Because, like I said, very few people were invited to see her paintings altogether. No one saw her working, no one saw anything in progress, and no one knew what she was working on. Um, and. In 1944, when she died, this is her Bryant Park apartment. This is how she lived, surrounded by all of these paintings. Sometimes she would gift them uh, to people if they were portraits of somebody, uh, like the Virgil Thompson portrait, for example, she would give to him. Um, but this speaks to the fact that her paintings, her life, this was all an extension of this, this world that she had conjured up. O'Keeffe uh, delivered the eulogy for Stettheimer, and she wrote, it always seemed fine to think that Florine would live and work serenely without having to market the things she did. I wish now that she is gone, that her place with her work could be kept intact as she had it, a perfect picture of one way of life, of one way of working. Her painting represented hard work, hours of meticulous, long, hard work alone. That last part, I think O'Keeffe's talking about O'Keeffe. But, because um, this is what she values. But nonetheless, uh, the part about uh, a way of life and thereby extension, her painting and her, and her environment is all one, um, is, is critical, I think, that O'Keeffe recognized. It's only in 1936 and the death of her mother when she is in her mid-60s that Stedheimer actually gets to live alone. Um, and she moves permanently into this uh, studio space. Um, and this notion of conjuring up your own work, uh, she, she has to construct her own space um, because in here she constructs her own space as an artist. Um, this is, I was talking to Margaret Priestin uh, about Stedheimer walking around, and this, this is what she recognized, and this idea that women don't have a home for their art. It's not that you need a home in order to have, but rather a home, a place where your art can go, the place where you express yourself as an artist. And I talk about the sort of echo of domesticity. It's important to think of this notion that you must construct a space where you can be an artist. Uh, they moved into Alban Court in 1926. This is where most of the salons took place. It's a very famous building in New York near um, Columbus Circle and uh, Carnegie Hall. And it had this really elaborate, and continues to have this really elaborate facade. Carl van Vechten referred to it as Chateau Stedheimer. And uh, her reference to it in the painting directly, there is the address, obviously locates that painting um, at Alban Park. You can see that. Um, this is no ordinary portrait of a family. It is on the Cleopatra needle that's on the side where she really announces the subject of the picture. It is forced seen by Florine. Um, um, 
And then you have 1933, both the year that the painting was made as well as the year that the Rockefeller Center was completed. And these uh, four sits, saints, whatever they are, yeah, <laughs> hard to say, estes, are individually identified in the overlapping wedges contained in the central bottom red semicircle. It's Stedheimer. Um, you see Florine, Eddie, 1933, Mother, Carrie, S.T. This painting is a culmination uh, of her career. She herself thought of it as her masterpiece, and it was on view at MoMA at the time of her death. Um, I spoke a little bit about kind of how she presents everyone in, the, in these kind of concentric circles that start with this red and then everyone is on this yellow carpet like on a little canopy and then you have the blue of the world beyond um, with these uh, immense flowers floating. Um, these uh, sort of magnificent sort of apparitions um, are made even more ethereal because of these green tendrils that kind of buoy them. They do emerge sort of so enormous. Well, somehow she makes this picture work, you know, this space, this calibration of the relationship between the elements and her treatment of space makes it look impossibly plausible because her world exists. For her, it's real. And I couldn't not show you this picture, which was done just a year before, talking about how artists are in conversation with one another. This is one of the largest pictures that O'Keeffe would have made to that point. Um, obviously, a skyscraper for a mural competition. It speaks to both of their interests in this kind of, like how to make monumentality a radical thing, how to take on the city that is subject matter primarily for May artists, um, the playfulness that they have in what is, you know, serious business of building skyscrapers, but more importantly, how they each make set, uh, space for their own idiosyncratic and very personal interest in their art. So what you have is you have three cloth flowers. Um, O'Keeffe by this time being rather infamous for her painting of flowers. These are cloth flowers that she finds in uh, New Mexico that she has simply floating on the very surface of this gigantic erect skyscraper, defying really its masculinity and inserting herself there. And I think this is what uh, Stedheimer and O'Keeffe really do have in common. The thing that is becoming of more and more interest to me as I think about the exhibition and walk around is the way in which Stedheimer, um, almost every work, includes text. And I'm trying to think through sort of what to do about this business. It's not that she's the only one, it's not that she invented it, and these things are neither here nor there for me, really. It's more that there's, um, there's a kind of deliberate way in which she appears to label things. So you can never mistake that that is Florine and that is Eddie, despite the fact that she's given you all the attributes and the iconography is never changing and permanent. There is a way in which um, she sort of stamps this identification almost to try to say, look, there's something for you to read. There's a narrative here. I am giving you a way in. You can read all these things. These are saints that I see. This is a scene that I see. These are people, then these are their names. But in fact, I think um, that this is actually her strategy of yet again, keeping us at bay, because nothing is revealed through the text that she offers. Nothing is revealed through the fact that every single figure in a Stedheimer painting can be identified, um, and they go through elaborate lengths to identify who's who and what they're doing and where that was. I truly believe that this is the ultimate way in which Stedheimer invites us and also resists us ever actually knowing what it is that she is talking about. Um, this picture really is a summation, like I said, uh, everything she took from the four arts, what she was thinking about in the Four Saints in Three Acts, the opera she was working on at the time. Um, and again, O'Keeffe observed at, at the time of her passing that Stedheimer's painting came truly from her heart. It was large and wide and free. She put into visible form in her own way something, call it a way of life. She was like her work, her work was like her. 
fantasy and reality all mixed up. She was perfectly consistent with any of her inconsistencies. Stedheimer's own personal intentions are private and unknowable, despite the way in which she seems to offer us her world. Stedheimer's world is of her own invention. It does not account or accommodate others. For example, here in Portrait of Myself, I think it's in the title, I conjure me for myself. Because to create a world is to first invent yourself. Indeed, to make sense of yourself in the world is to be able to imagine yourself in it. And if that world does not allow for you, then you imagine one that does. Because what is imagination if not the sheer, the sheer power of coming into being? Thank you. Thank you. I really do hope you have some questions. I ordered some people to have questions. If you've got a question, uh, just raise your hand and I'll bring you the microphone or Madeline's got one over there. All right. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> I win. First of all, thank you. That was such a wonderful oh, talk. With the portrait of M M Marcel Duchamp, yeah. the two portraits, um, you mentioned that there was a lot more to say about it. Yeah. And I'm really curious, can you just tell us a bit more about it? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I think there's so much work to be done on that picture itself because I think that there's a way that she gets to uh, sort of what Duchamp is. And, you know, if we think of Duchamp as kind of an attitude, I think that Stedheimer actually embodied that for, like, was actually, if he could be, uh, someone, an artist, I think that he would have been Stedheimer. So that's a loaded thing, so we'll figure that out, um, argue later. Um, but what I was going to say about uh, the fact that uh, it went up for auction, just because it's, it's an interesting thing. So uh, the estimate was 1 million to 1.5 million, and I was very curious to see how it was going to do, and it actually passed. So, um, which means they, it wasn't bought, maybe the reserve was very high. In any case, I think it's interesting to think about that, and I didn't want to put it in the talk because I, th I think it also speaks to this notion of ranking and value and ordering, and uh, what does it mean that you cannot buy a Stedheimer picture. They're all in public museums or archives. And yet here is one that I think um, has such broad uh, sort of commentary or reference to everything that is modern art at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and yet there isn't really sort of the market, the market for it. So please, let's all gather like 10 bucks and like make a million <laughs> and buy this picture. Thank you for a wonderful talk. Thank you. I never heard of her, mm -hmm. and I'm not alone in that. And you alluded to reasons for it. Can you say something about her invisibility? Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, the argument I'm making is that the biggest reason for invisibility is that we actually don't know what to make of it. It is, it is you know, like Gail Zoller said, uh, unclassifiable. And this desire that we have to put everyone in some kind of lineage, uh, even though it may resist some things, is, is really overpowering when it comes to writing art history. The second thing is that um, she didn't um, um, exhibit a lot in her lifetime to sell and therefore have other people to be champions of her outside of that intimate circle. So she gets resurrected first because Duchamp does her um, posthumous exhibition at MoMA in 1946 and then because uh, Andy Warhol and then because Linda Nochlin and then because Elizabeth Sussman. You know, so it's, it's people pick her up but they pick her up um, from their own point of view, and nothing seems to kind of go beyond that. Um, it also has to do with access to the works themselves. So there was a way in which artists in the United States of America believed that the work was for America. 
And so what they did, O'Keefe, many, many of them, Stieglitz, um, they uh, dispersed the work across the country to what they considered to be major institutions. And there is no, and this is a time when, you know, there was the Met but wasn't really collecting contemporary art, there was hardly MoMA, so there, there wasn't really a place uh, that you could think of, you know, at least in New York. So, the most prestigious thing of all would be a university. So the work uh, gets split between Yale and Columbia. And if you know anything about rare books, libraries, and manuscript libraries and archives, is that they're a non-lending library. So it doesn't matter what's inside, it's non-lending. So you can go to Yale and you can ask for the painting and they bring it and they put it on the table and it's a great experience. But it doesn't leave. So not having access to the work means that there is a lack of visibility. But she's there. Sort of. Yeah. There was a question there and then there. Mabel Dodge had the great salon in the 1920s. Was there any connection between both of them? Did they share guests? Was there any connection at all or crossover? Yeah, no, for sure, uh, especially through O'Keefe herself. I don't remember a reference to Mabel Dodge, but there must be because they were all, they were, you know, just the, the same way in which we live within our contemporary moment and we can withhold the contradictions of all kinds of art that exist at the same time, so did they. So um, I'm sure that there would have been a connection. I don't know, though, off the top of my head. Another question there. It's like that question that someone had the other day is what was Detheimer's interest in snakes? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> There's so many snakes, I'm like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I understand that uh, Florine Stetheimer was also a poet. And it's, it's been a long time since I've read her work, but it's quite interesting. And I wonder if you could comment on the fact that um, well, in your talk anyway, she seems to be more associated with the artists of her day, but w was there room in her salon for, for poetry as yeah. well, or was poetry for her more of a, a private expression? Yeah. No, absolutely there was. There were all kinds of writers um, that were part of her salon. Um, and I know the exhibition is called Painting Poetry, but it's not my title. And uh, I just ignore it, to be honest. Um, it's not, it's not uh, to not deal with it. Um, in fact, Toronto has a great connection in dealing with Stedheimer's poetry. Um, like I mentioned, uh, Ryerson, um, Irene and Suzanne, they um, collected and, uh, and reprinted the first sort of modern reprint of Crystal Flowers, so that's a great resource. You know, with Stedheimer and the sort of business that I tried to talk about that we're invited but not really, um, I feel even more strongly about her poems and that maybe has to do with the fact that I'm not entirely sure how she shared them, but I feel that they were handwritten things that she had they were, uh, they were of great meaning to her, so it's not that they're, they're, they're not of relevance. Um, but. Uh, I feel that they, they were even more within this closed circuit. And so uh, that's why I kind of, I only deal with them tangentially because I'm not entirely sure that she really wanted us to see her paintings because I don't think any of us are worthy or she would have thought of us as worthy. And with the poetry, I, w I wonder even more just um, how she would really feel about us reading those things. At least that's, that's my take on it. Oh. So I was curious about <laughs> what, what you just said about her. I'm curious about what you just said about her, um, the motivation behind her keeping her artwork private and for only a select few. You, you said that she thought that Others were not worthy to see the work, or was it she didn't think it was? I mean, I don't know. She didn't. She didn't have the confidence to put it on display. Like, right. for example, why did she hold back when she was invited to right. to exhibit more publicly? Right, right. So I was I was flippant to be funny, um, because I think we are worthy and we deserve her. Um, no, but what what do you think she thought? Yeah. Is there any hint? Yeah. Of it? So what I think. 
uh, Stettheimer thought was that these works were so much who she was that she wanted to have a very deep and meaningful conversation with the person that she invited to look at the work of art. So I think she was incredibly confident. I think that she was incredibly determined. I think that she was incredibly in control of, um, of the work that she was making and what her project was in this conjuring up of the world. I think that she was very particular about who she invited in. and um, and it's interesting to kind of respect that choice, right? So here I have, I have so many more pictures, but I just want to show you this one. This is how she lived with this portrait at Alwyn Court. And the other picture that's also in the show called Music, you know, these fringes, and you can see there's a mirror above the table. Um, you know, this was all part and parcel. This is her bedroom. This is how she um, really lived in this world, you know, uh, with the work. So I think that uh, for her, it was about having a really meaningful exchange through the work. And um, it required special circumstances. Um, and um, there was one more thing I was going to say about that. And it's, it, I don't think she was trying to be difficult. I think that uh, it was very difficult for her to imagine how that would happen. So Stieglitz, for example, invites her to show at American Place, I think American Place, um, which is like the sterile white walls gallery. And he even offered to have plants in the gallery and she still said no. So I think that she was just very particular about how she wanted to, to have her work. Yeah. Outside of the very curated spaces that Florine created in terms of her salon, she also seems to have a bit of an obsession with America, particularly New York City. What do you make of the, the scenes that she paints of New York, of Spring Sale, of Bendels, and those such? Because they're so interesting. They're so funny. There's such a sort Somewhere of lightheartedness to them. So what do you make of her as maybe a sort of chronologer of... Um, of the city of New York through the 1920s and 30s? Um, so there is this other aspect of her where she seems to be commenting on the city. And I think that um, what I will say sort of is that her take on the city is uh, to be thought of in how else the city was being depicted at that time, right? So to think of this kind of picture is to understand that um, she was making this kind of subject matter also worthy of art. These women at Bendel's fighting for dresses on sale. But she doesn't uh, explicate herself. Is that the word? Like she, she is in this world as well because she is a dog with the FS in the corner, right? So she, she it's, I don't think she's passing judgment on any of these things. I think she's saying this is the city. Um, this is it in, in its fullness. Um, and maybe in a slight sort of binary thing is um, she really opens up um, thinking about the city in a very kind of maybe female way, you know, that um, when O'Keefe paints the city, it's not that way, right? It's still very um, much in keeping with her painting style, yeah. The, the obsession with Americana um, is interesting, as of course is the fact that she lives through the war and there is no real reference to uh, what's going on in Europe at the time, and, and it's not that she was unaware. Um, and I think that probably it has something to do with this long lineage. I think that she felt very much rooted and connected to this place and, um, and really thought of Washington as that full hero that he might or might not be. Pursuit of liberty and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, we have one more question or? Yay. I think we're good. Georgiana, okay. thank you thank so much you. for your talk tonight. <laughs>